Welcome to the Deeper Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead curator of Deeper Into Movies. We're a pop-up cinema based in London and New York. Today on the podcast is my hero, Brett Easton Ellis. Brett has been my favorite novelist since I was 16 and I read Lesson Zero in my teenage bedroom. Well, that's not true. I stole my brother's copy of American Psycho when I was around 13. I didn't get it. And all I remember thinking was, this guy is really cool. He kills people and he rents videotapes all the time. This month, Brett is back with his first novel in over 10 years, The Shards. A fictionalized memoir that follows the teenage Ellis as he and his Hollywood friends cruise around 80s Los Angeles while a serial killer stalks the city. The Shards was originally serialized in Brett Easton Ellis' podcast, which is available on Patreon. Each episode, he gave another chapter of the book, and it was amazing. It sounded like an old-school radio play. Brett and I are friends in real life, and we've hung out a few times, and we've exchanged emails, and we've interviewed So I was aware that I didn't want this pod to sound performative or ask Brett questions that he knows that I already know the answer to. So I tried to have a fresh conversation and we got into it about 80s movies. I persuaded Brett now that The Billionaire Boys Club is good and worth revisiting. We spoke about Blowout. And we really went into it about Taylor Swift. This is a big one for me. I hope you enjoy it. Here is me and Brett Easton Ellis. Yeah, everything's going really good this year. Really? Life and business doing really good. How old are you? 43. My birthday's Uh, in January. You've got a couple years left. (laughs) Of joy or just... Until you're completely and completely... Until complete decorruptitude and depression enter the picture. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself. The depression's always lurking, but otherwise, yeah, everything's good. So... I've already set up the book in the introduction, but anytime I read books set in the 80s in high school, I my brain always goes to teen movies. And it got me wondering, were any of those 80s teen movies accurate for your experience in any way? Like Fast Times, Pretty in Pink, Risky Business, things like that, with their pool parties and kegs and... Well, you know, movies are fantasies. Movies yeah. aren't, they're not documentaries. They're reflections of how we would like to see ourselves. Fantasies of what our aspirational figures are, perhaps, and not, you know, um, not particularly realistic uh, in that way. And that's not why I went to a movie. Uh, uh, but I do think that there are certain elements 
of some of those movies that were very, uh, not only reflective accurately of that era, because there are plenty of fake out movies, but that also tapped into an authentic teen uh, experience. I think Risky Business was really one of them because it was so um, upfront about sex. Mm -hmm. And you also have to remember that so many of the teen movies of that era, not the ones we remember the most because those were fairly mild. Those were PG, PG PG-13. But some of the best ones were R-rated and fairly raunchy. And Risky Business was really among the first of them. Much imitated, never equal, I don't think. Um, but I, I did relate to Joel Goodson, who was the Tom Cruise character in Risky Business, a lot. And it was a very 80s movie because it seemed like a, re, uh, a reflection of a kind of pre-yuppie Reagan 80s mentality. Uh, the kids were ultimately uh, in that movie... Um, Unironically, unironically, to a degree, um, uh, emerging as uh, the yet-to-be-named yuppie in the culture. I don't think Paul Brickman's original script was about that. I think it was a much darker look that the studio lightened up a bit. You could still see traces of his of his of his um, uh, the elegance of the making of that movie, and there's still some pretty spiking humor in it but you know uh the studio wanted the ending change the studio wanted uh joel to get into i think it was harvard or yale yeah uh and um he does though the original ending he didn't and it was much more of a kind of downbeat ending i think i think maybe in this case the studio ending was better i don't know but in terms the sure of course when you look back in the 80s john hughes movies are uh, are are so emblematic of how we saw ourselves and how we felt about stuff, and also quite honestly, their music. Even for a forgettable movie like Some Kind of Wonderful, uh, their soundtracks were phenomenal. So yes, the eighties. I, I don't think I really honestly don't think any of them are that good. Though I do think among the best of them are probably Ferris Bueller's Day Off, another Reagan. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> pro yuppie movie, but that's probably my favorite along with Risky Business. Pretty in Pink soundtrack was incredible. That was a really great collection. Pretty in Pink soundtrack was completely incredible. I don't like that movie. I don't think it's a good no? movie, but oh. but it is. But it is iconic. Yeah, Hughes had a well. He 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 would write in all the music as he was writing the script. Nothing was an afterthought. I've done he, that before. He's had a whole he had a whole music room which he'd write in, and I think I think they gave him his own label because he was so good at the needle drops and syncing music. I uh, I think I think Tarantino did the same thing, and I know that I've done that in scripts as well, and been often told we can't afford that. How about this movie, Billionaire Boys Club? Um, not good. No, <laughs> not good. Uh, now that now wait wait, there was one recently made with Kevin Spacey with Kevin Spacey that's truly terrible this is the one with Judd Judd Nelson yes you know what I don't remember it but I can't imagine it being any good there's a scene where they go shopping in Rodeo Drive buying Armani suits set to the Pet Shop Boys Let's Make Lots of Money which was all told in stills which was 
Now, now you make me want to see it. I'll send I'll, I'll send you the YouTube link of just that sequence. Please do. Uh, send me the whole thing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, you made me want you with that description. You made me want to watch the whole thing. No, it's great, dude. But I think I remember seeing parts of it and thinking, ah, no. There have been some very good books written about it, but uh, I haven't seen a good. Uh, and I think just those two movies, perhaps. I'm savoring your new book. I'm on just got up to the bit where they've gone to see The Shining. And I'm deliberately taking it very slow because your books are so pleasurable that I'm just savoring it bit by bit. It's so exciting, but I always come back to the way you end paragraphs or chapters. You always have these incredible final lines. Is this something you realize you're doing? Like, um, what's an example? Like at the end of Luna Park, where you're talking about your father and you say, you're the one I needed. I love you in my dreams. Killed me. Or there's that section in Glamorama where Chloe's asleep. And there's that beautiful paragraph, that beautiful montage of what she's dreaming about. Does this ring a bell? Do you know what I'm talking about? And it says, even though we've never met her it feels like we've known her forever do these flow do, i was wondering do these those amazing stream of conscious do they flow do you work on them or are they a case-by-case basis i think all of the above i mean i think basically books are written uh from an emotional place the first drafts are often um outlines that i do that are very emotional i pour out uh, all these ideas I have, I do um, uh, test runs of how I think the narrator is going to narrate this particular book. Uh, I did a year of outlining American Psycho. So that's all very passionate. And then that first draft that I based on that outline is really written in the heat of the moment. It's really written with a lot of uh, emotion. I, I'm drawn by my feelings. I, I don't over-intellectualize the process. You might think one would by doing an outline, but that's not how my outlines are like, because everything is coming from an emotional place within me. The books are a reflection of how I am feeling at the time, maybe perhaps what I'm thinking about, too. But primarily they're about pain. They're about confusion. uh, They're about, you know, the stress of life. And you go through different stresses at different points in your life. And each book is a reflection of where I was at a certain point in my life. But then, yes, the cool technician comes in. The cool technician comes in when you finally spent yourself emotionally on a book and you begin to tighten things up and you rewrite a few things and you realize "Um, that doesn't quite work and maybe I'm going to move this over here. I'm going to cut this. And um, wouldn't it sound better if I ended this paragraph here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a balance of the two. And um, I also have to be very aware of the narrator's voice because that's that's really how I'm communicating the story. It's from the style of his language and what he sees and what he recognizes. I do not think that Patrick Bateman, for example, would ever have had those feelings about a girlfriend he's lying next to watching her sleep. Yeah. Um, just as I don't think the clay figure in something like Imperial Bedrooms would notice and describe a wall in a restaurant that he favored for a 
page, which I did in the first draft. And I kept stopping at this page I'd written because I realized, oh, he wouldn't notice that. I mean, I noticed the wall in the restaurant. It was silvery. It was mirrored. I loved this wall in this restaurant. I thought how cool it would be to describe it. But then I realized Clay would never, never spend a page describing that. So it had to go. That's just an example of how it worked. Mm -hmm. And you've said before, when people have asked, why aren't you more prolific? Why aren't there more books? You've said you can't force it. The book has to show itself to you and come through and you just can't cash a check and turn something in. Well, yeah, I think people do. I think maybe people do. I don't know. Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't. And and, and I don't, you know, if you've written a fucking great book and that's how you work, great. I'm all for that. And I wish I'd written more books. I really do. But it just hasn't happened that way. Um, uh, They, uh, I was obviously more prolific when I was younger. And maybe I was feeling a little bit more than, I don't know. Maybe that's what... Books came to me very quickly, and I had about, I don't know, three three in a row that were, like, almost overlapping each other. Um, but, um, but yes, a book has to announce itself to me. Uh, I cannot sit in front of a typewriter on Monday morning and go, okay, it's time to write a new book. Here we go. Uh, well, what's really popular right now? Uh, young adults as popular. Can I think of, um, you know, maybe a dystopian fantasy world? I just can't do it. So it's a waste of time for me to even try. I'm not patting myself on the back either. I'm not, I am not bragging about that because I wish I was more prolific. And I really do feel, as I said last night at uh, the, at uh, the South Bank center where you were at, um, that I, I maybe <laughs> I might have missed one or two really good books in my forties and fifties by wasting my time in Hollywood. Yeah. Kubrick said he felt the same when people always say, why do you work so slow? And that, that was one of his big losses that he couldn't work faster. He just couldn't operate that way, but he wanted to make more, but you know, extreme example, but obviously similar feeling. Well, I'm somewhat flattered by you using that as an example. Yeah. Somewhat. <laughs> okay. One of your great quotes that film is dead and that COVID was the death nail in the theatrical experience. Oh, well, yes. The second part of that, I I do believe. I do believe that COVID and the lockdown and the pandemic and our reaction to it um, by closing all the movie theaters was the end of the theatrical experience for a certain kind of movie. I do think avatars and top guns will be playing in massive cinemas all over yeah. the place. I do not think any of the prestige pictures that opened at the end of the year and that bombed terribly everything from the Fablemans to Tar to the Banshees of Inchirin will ever open in theaters next fall. They might have a run in LA and New York where a lot of Academy members are, but I think the Academy is going to get rid of that rule. The Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences has a rule that says uh, only pictures that have had at least a week's opening in a theatrical venue in LA and New York are eligible for Academy Awards. They're gonna have to change that because that ain't happening next year. There was way too much money lost on movies like The Fablemans and Tar and The Banshees of Sheeran. 
in terms of no one going to see them in theaters in the United States. That's too bad, but that's happened. That's uh-huh. gone. And therefore, um, you know, when I talked to Quentin Tarantino about this, we really do think that the era of movie culture, of new movie culture, of us caring about movies. And when we look back at the history of movies and the great movies that mattered and were discussed and are going to be talked about in the future was basically 1920 to 2020. It was a good hundred year run. And then everything after that, no one really gives a shit about. No, it's true. No one really gives a shit about any movies past that. And I would say the last really great, great American movie that connected with a large theatrical audience was Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, I love Tar. Look, I thought Tar was a terrific movie, but no one has seen it. Tar has made $5 million globally. And you have to, five million on a $40 million budget. That's a disaster for focus features. And you have to understand theater owners get half of that. And then you have to understand from the two and a half million that focus gets, they have to pay taxes on that. Yeah. It's over. The theatrical experience, yeah, you look at in, uh, I was in New York uh, last week on this book tour and I was looking through the New York Times and they do have a lot of art theaters, revival theaters. Uh, that's one place. Yeah. But I don't think LA does not have that anymore. That's gone. No. I can name two places the New Beverly, the Arrow, maybe. It's it's over. But you were going to ask me a question about it. Yeah, I'd have just a thought. I, I remember over lockdown, I was going back through all my directors like Friedkin, Schrader, De Palma, Bogdanovich, Coppola. And the first thing I did in lockdown was I bought a massive 65-inch TV because I knew the cinemas would be closing. And I bought De Palma's blowout on the Criterion Blu-ray. And, you know, you say, I've seen it before, but I haven't seen it like I did on that experience. And pure spectacle and all the elements were just blasting on all cylinders the performances the cinematography masterpiece his, i think it's the palmer's masterpiece yeah the mood the romance the cynicism yeah the performances spectacular there was that haunting moment where Travolta introduced himself to nancy allen in the hospital and they have that connection and the theme hits but it's so melancholic and haunting and it's just signifying yeah. it's important that they fell in the you know, that yeah it's already doomed yeah. And I was so in awe of a movie and at the end of it, I was so emotional because I was so flawed by the film, but also almost in a sense, looking back that nothing's going to hit like this again. I I, I don't really feel a film of this power and and scope. This is a thing of the past. Well, that was also an extremely expensive movie uh, for 1981. It was hugely expensive. It was one of the last quote-unquote, auteur movies of the 70s, let's call it, even though it was yeah. 1981. Blowout is very much a 70s film. But it cost an enormous amount of money, I believe, for filmways. They lost a lot of money, and it was a bomb. It was one of De Palma's big bombs. Got uh, okay reviews. Uh, Paul and Kay loved it. and then, But now, in retrospect, it's considered his greatest film. Uh, and it's just... It's a big, you would think, commercial movie. It was released in the summer of 1981. It had the biggest movie star in it at that time, John Travolta. 
De Palma was coming off Dress to Kill, a huge hit of him in 1980, and you thought all the elements were in place. He had the freedom in that moment. He had been allowed to be given the ticket to make anything he wanted on any budget he wanted. And he swung for the fences, as so many of those filmmakers did when they were given that shot in the 70s and 80s, and they were given a lot of money. And But a lot of those movies just did not do very well. People tend to forget The Shining wasn't a hit. The Shining was one of the most expensive movies ever made for Warner Brothers. It cost something like, I don't know what, $19 million in 1980 money. It did not do well at the box office. Raging Bull barely made money when it was released in 1980. That was an hugely expensive movie, $20 million. I think Woody Allen had made his most expensive movie then, Stardust Memories, for something like for him, a ton of money, and all of these movies weren't doing well. And so an end of an era, the, the 70s were closing out with these movies, very personal, very auteur, and, um, and, then the, and then as Quentin Tarantino likes to say, then the worst decade ever happened when uh, they stopped letting the artists make the movies and the lawyers and the agents decided to what movies to make. So, um, yes, blowout. There is not going to be a movie culture or a system that allows a blowout to be made in such a way that I could go see it on 70 millimeter on opening weekend in Westwood in the summer of 1981 and be kind of just blown away by the artistry and the spectacle of this big movie. This episode is brought to you by our friends at MUBI, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema. I've been a MUBI subscriber for years. Every film is hand-selected. I'm going to give you three recommendations from the MUBI UK platform. Okay, this is going to be my third favorite Gus Van Sant film ever. Paranoid Park. Set in Portland coming-of-age movie involving a skate park and an unsolved murder. That's all I'm going to say. And it's shot by the legendary Christopher Doyle. You probably know him from his amazing work with Wong Kar Wai. Kaboom! From 2010, Gregor Aki, and this just says it all on the movie description, comedy, mystery, sci-fi, LGBTQ. This is like Greg doing everything he does best alien abductions everyone's hooking up gen x energy and juno temple is just fantastic in this finally tenebrae i'm just gonna say it this is dario argento's best movie hands down this is the craziest and coolest looking giallo movie Amazing score from Goblin. Cinematography. The insane sadistic deaths that always happen in these types of movies. It's beautiful. It's weird. It's Dario's best. There you go. And you can try Mubi for 30 days for free at Mubi.com 
slash deeper into movies. So sign up, use my promo code, watch all these cool movies and more for free. Movie.com slash deeper into movies. When you were first writing the shards, you serialized it on your podcast. Did you have any intention of releasing it as a book? I was just wondering why you bypassed the usual agent draft and things like that and decided to serialize it on the podcast, almost like a... It's so interesting. You know, I don't know. I mean, I look, I was going to write the book anyway. Yeah, It happened. That week in April, I call it. That week in April. Oh, my God. I'm going to write the shards now. What a moment that was at 7.30 on a Thursday night uh, in lockdown. In the first month of lockdown. A book I've been thinking about for 40 years and that never um, announced itself to me. So it announced itself to me. Oh, God. This is fantastic i'm finally going to get to write the shards i'm feeling it i'm finally feeling it here it is um there are so many reasons why i was probably finally feeling it but uh i do think age age is a big factor time's running out to a degree uh the places that we meaning my classmates and i in 1981 82 were They had been eradicated. They had not been curated. I was feeling nostalgic. I was feeling uh, uh, regret about my sexuality and my lust-filled days. Uh, partially, the regret is that I don't have them now. But I, you know, I was very nostalgic about being a horny teenager at fifty-six and fifty-seven, and so all of these memories came. Uh, came back to me and I wanted to write about a lot of things that occurred in my life at that time uh, uh, um, melded into this other story about a serial killer um, so um, so I'm happy I, I don't call my agent up I don't call a publisher up I haven't asked for an advance in decades I'm not saying that in a bragging way, I'm saying that it just doesn't have anything to do with what I'm doing, and I don't want to be interrupted. So I wrote the book, and as I was writing the book, there was uh, there were no guests on our podcast, and I was sick of talking about the virus with my producer and doing these kind of these essays about driving around empty LA uh, in 2020. Why not write about driving through empty LA in 1981? That sounded, sounded so much better. Anyway. So I got about 200 uh, pages into the book and I thought, um, you know what? Let's do something that no one has done before. Let's serialize a novel on a podcast, not in a magazine, not anywhere else. Let's do it. At, uh, let's do it uh, on a pod- podcast. And my um, producer said, oh, all right, we got nothing else. Let's do it. Let's see how it goes. And so the first chapter went really, really well. People responded to it. 
And so we continued with it as I was writing it because it had been laid out 40 years ago. I knew exactly where the book was going. So the podcast had no influence on the book itself. And we did it for about a year and I finished it and I didn't send it to my agent and I didn't send it to my publisher because I was perfectly happy with how it turned out as a podcast that perhaps that's the way you should experience the shards. Now, I also have to say, I don't like audible books. I do not like to listen to books. So I would not have been, you know, I would not have been a paying member of the podcast to listen to it. And I couldn't listen to, I couldn't listen to those uh, episodes that I recorded. I don't like to listen to myself read. Um, but anyway, my agent had a fit. She found out about it and she just got so pissed off at me and she hadn't listened to it. And so I sent her the manuscript and she said, you know, as I've been prone to tell the story, she said, you know, it's really too bad. You wrote your best novel and I'm retiring in a year, you know, mm-hmm. but thank you. <laughs> so um, you finally wrote, I mean, she's been a great agent, but I know she, her taste has not always aligned with my books. And so then we made a deal with the publishing house and now here I am talking to you. And I made a note from last night. You said you don't give advice and you yeah. don't seek it. I've picked up two of the best three of the best life lessons from you one one well one this this saved me probably six months therapy where you said looking back your dad was a man of a certain generation who you now get that your life and your career and your lifestyle it wouldn't have made sense to him yes which is the same my dad's uh working class Irish guy working from the age of 15 after I left uni and I was just slacking in record stores and writing a blog and not really making anything of myself. He was concerned and he'd bust my balls and say, where is this going? You can't live at home forever. You know, you you can't be blowing your salary every week on records. You need to think of a, a life, a house, you know, we're not going to be around to support you. And this this would fucking cut me so deep because it would just tap into all my insecurities and me not knowing what I wanted to do and who, who I, what I was going to be. And then when he said that, I was like, I get it. I totally get it. You know, me, me writing an occasional article for, for, for Vice <laughs> wasn't at all impressive for him. He's like, I get up at 6 a.m. every day. I shower, I go to work till 6 and I'm back at it and a nine to five every day. So, you know, you in bed watching the OC is not really (laughs) impressing me. Yes. But it obviously all leveled out and he's totally proud of what I'm doing now. But those years of just feeling, yeah, just so let down, but I totally get it. It completely makes sense. And the other other one was you, you said, I think someone mentioned on the podcast that you'd often do a Irish goodbye. You just leave a party and not tell anyone and jump in an Uber. And you said, I know when the party's over and it's just downhill from here on in. And it's so <laughs> fucking, it's so fucking true. There is that part of the night where people are looking for somewhere else to go. They're trying to find what bar is open or, is anyone having a party in a house or a warehouse? 
and it's always a tenuous connection and i know it's it's going to suck i know that's the time to leave and just go home for the night and get that uber yeah uh i i'm glad you i'm i'm glad all this resonated with you but i i don't think i've been to a party in 5 years <laughs> no i don't like parties <laughs> I hate parties. I have, and I used to love them. I used to throw huge, elaborate parties. I used to think parties were so much fun. I think I waxed poetic about the meaning of parties in Lunar Park. There was a paragraph or two in the beginning about what the party meant to Brett Ellis and, and how it defined his life. Um, so, um, but I don't know. But the idea of going to a party right now at this point in my life just fills me with dread. I don't do it. You're young. I don't think I've had fun at many parties. I've been to a lot of parties. I don't know if I'd feel very self-aware and have never really had that many fun. I like dinners. I, I like dinners. I yeah, can do a, I can do a birthday do party or a wedding. That's kind of got a different energy, but but I was deeply uh-huh. relating when you were complaining about loud restaurants. Yeah. Well, I, well, <laughs> I, I need to go to birthday parties or weddings. <laughs> do you have a go-to excuse? Uh, no, I don't. I just, I'm not coming. I don't give an excuse. I say, I don't want to go to your destination wedding. Uh, I don't want to go to your birthday party. I don't want, I just don't. And I have good friends who completely understand that and they're okay with it. Or they pretend they are. I don't know. I mean, I had a good friend. I have a good friend who had, who had a big 40th uh, birthday party, huge bash, like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people. And I just told them like, dude, I am not going to this. I am not, I, it's the small talk I'm going to have to make and the people I'm going to have to talk to and the meaninglessness of it all. I, be grateful I'm not coming. And he was. <laughs> he was cool. A dinner party of about 10 at someone's house is about the most people I can deal with in a single room. And yeah. I will do that. I've done that a couple times this year, in fact. So far. I was always thinking about the first thing that comes out of people's mouths when they think of you is American Psycho. And I was wondering, how is it when you have that iconic piece of work in your catalog? Let's say that's your Nevermind or your OK Computer. But I'm always championing fucking Glamorama. I think Glamorama is your masterpiece. And yeah, I was just wondering how you reckon with that. Well, I'm always championing the Benz. So, you know, we all have our different tastes and we all have our favorite records and, you know, be it, be it as it may. Um, you know, I, I honestly, and this is, I'm answering you honestly. I'm, sure. not, I'm, not, I'm not dissing you on any no. level. Okay. Go ahead. I don't care. I don't think about it. Yeah. Uh, these novels were written decades ago. Um, I don't rate them in my head. Uh, I have other things on my mind, but I have been talking about lately on the plumbing. I mean, I have to talk about the shards, I guess, but yeah. I wrote that book over a year, a year and a half ago. But, you know, I have uh, a lot of problems going on in my life right now that are preoccupying me when I get off this interview and I'm on text trying to find uh, the plumbers for my <laughs> for your own sweet bathroom, yeah. Apartment. I'm worried about uh, leaving my boyfriend alone for two two weeks because it's the first time I will not be with him since he got out of rehab. And 
aging parents and all the stuff that you have to deal with and just other other the, the usual shit of daily life that really becomes more meaningful for me at 58 than my oeuvre or my, yeah. the list of books i've written so okay so but if you if so i am and there's and you know the other thing uh steven you can't do anything about but the true. popularity yeah. of the books people like what they like they like American Psycho the best, and it sold the most. That's completely fine with me. I am on a right now. If you ask me, I'm on an Imperial Bedrooms kick. For some reason, a book that I didn't like much when I published it, and I was so depressed. I was at such a low point in my life. I picked it up about two or three years ago because someone said it's really good, and I said, "Really?" And I looked at I said, "Oh, they're right." And I just love the spareness of the prose. Yes, I'm jerking off over my own book. No, right go now. ahead. You're like, right. Just, there, there's so much pain in it. There is so much pain radiating off those spare pages with the big type, and it's 160 pages. And I just think that is the book now that I can look to completely unembarrassed. Yeah, I cannot say that about American Psycho or Less Than Zero or... Um, or Glamorama to a degree, though I I did for a long time like Glamorama the most, and I think I liked it the most because I lived with it the longest. It gave me so much pleasure to write that book and to hang out with Victor Ward for eight years, eight years of my life that I didn't want to end. I loved writing that book. It was such a, it was this giant thing I was building, and I went to it every day, and I thought about it for years, and I don't know. I'll never be able to write a book like that again. And I'll never be able to work that way again because that was my thirties or my late twenties or whatever. And it's a, you, you just have a different mindset and, and a different way of approaching things and everything. So anyway, so I don't care. I know American Psycho will be on the, uh, the, if, if, if there's a headline that American Psycho will be uh, in it and not anything else. No, you're right about Imperial bedrooms. The, the creepiness and the, 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 the dog. Yes. <laughs> it's ghastly. And God, it's just so creepy. And I love, I think the writing is just, I, 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 I really was just so depressed that I, I was, I, I would be paying very close attention to that book because I wrote it during the bleakest, worst stage of my life. And I, it was my go-to in order to, exorcise my pain and what I was doing in Hollywood and what was going on with the informers. It basically is the diaries of the making of the informers. It basically yeah. was that. And I just changed the informers to the listeners and I, whatever, whatever, whatever. And I was thinking, is there a certain headspace or place you have to go into to write that dark, ominous, sinister moments like that amazing moment where I think it's the black SUV is is behind Clay. I think the SUV cuts in front or shoots down a side road and he says to the driver, what do you think they wanted? And it was so fucking haunting. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I just remember that was then and that's how I was feeling. And I was working in an industry where I realized people lied all the time. And, you know, I grew up out in LA and I knew that and I should have remembered it and I should have known better about, 
getting into that industry and everything was a betrayal mostly everything was fake and it was um it was really it was really painful the painful uh, i i should have known better i should have known better everyone's but everyone should have known better because mm-hmm. everyone goes you know you everyone realizes at a certain point it's a mistake and um they move on and I, as i have one of my team members is out in L.A. at the moment, and I just sent her money and said, get me the American edition of the shards because I prefer the cover. So I'm that geeky that I want the other edition as well. What is your favorite book cover of your work? Um, okay. Uh, I love the U.K. version of the shards. Yeah. Absolutely love it. I think Swift did a great job. I love... Uh, the U.S. cover of the Shards by Chip Kidd, who has done all the covers for my books at Knopf since The Informers. So The Informers, Glamorama, Lunar Park, White, and Net and Peel Bedrooms, a beautiful, fantastic cover, a really scary cover, and also now The Shards. I didn't like Chip's uh, uh, cover for The Shards at first. And we got into a thing about it. Chip is an old friend. We've known each other for almost 38 years. And I I called him and I've loved every cover he's done of mine. And I said, Chip, I just don't, this cover works. These eyeballs and the red, the blood red, isn't it just so on the nose? And he said, well, look, you know, uh, I had 24 hours now to come up with it because you rejected my first cover. And then the sales force rejected my second cover. They need an answer by midnight, you know? And so I said, and then my agent calls me, you don't have a choice. In they're, they're, they're using this cover. I love it now. It's just a yeah, great cover. And I didn't know those eyes were mine. <laughs> he took them from a, an old photograph he found of me. And those eyes that are on the cover of the U.S. edition, um, I've been really lucky with covers. I've really yeah. had a lot of great covers. What's yours? Oh, I've. This is fucking insane. The Glamorama. That's genius. I I found this in a secondhand bookstore. Probably the best cover. Incredible. For listeners, I'm showing him the uh, original Glamorama cover. Incredible. Chip Kid. That was, that cover was, that was an expensive, we were in a different time. That was a different era. Uh, The amount of money that publishers spent on books and paper and an artist to create a cover like that and with the holes in it and the whole thing was just uh, long gone, long gone. When we met for lunch a few years ago, Todd said we we should meet up because you're bored in London during your, I think this is when you're on doing your exhibition at the Gagosian Gallery. And then I said, yeah, we met. It was great. We had lunch. And he said, wow, you had lunch? Brett hates lunch. Brett doesn't do lunch with people. Is that true? Why are you over lunch? Uh, Because I work. I have working hours. And I really don't like to have them interrupted. And I do work through the day. I will take a break and go to the gym. I will do that uh, on some days, not every day. And that will be my break. But I don't like going out to a restaurant and I don't like sitting at lunch when I could be working. Uh, I don't like to work at night. Oh, right. So I, so I prefer to end my day at uh, really around seven. Seven o'clock is really when I'm done with work. 
and then it's time to have a drink and dinner and then to watch some film or TV. So that's why I don't. But I was I was in town uh, with not a lot to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were um, uh, uh, my friend Alex Israel and I had uh, were uh, we had created a bunch of paintings and we were selling them and exhibiting them at the Gagosian Gallery here in London at that time. And so I, I did have a lot of free time. And plus, the food was pretty good, and we had when we got to meet. And finally, let's end on this. What is your favorite Taylor Swift song? Uh, there are there are so many. Right. Uh, I've been listening to "Getaway Car" a lot lately, and that was off a record that I really didn't like that much, um, but. I also, oh God, there, uh, there's so many. I love uh, the Archer. I love um, All at Once. Is that the one that? What is that the one? Also well, or well, yes. What's it called again? Also well, I think is that. Am I? I don't know what you yeah, mean. Yeah, that. I mean, literally. I mean, um, out of the woods. Um, uh, uh, I there's too many to name. Yeah, too many. The I Ar- love Taylor Swift. The Archer, the line when she says, "All my enemies started out friends." Incredible. With that Those kind of Bruce guys. Springsteen synth sound, that was really good. Um. Yes, but I do have to. Uh, what in the hell is was a song? And I just um, it it was uh let's see uh all too well all too well yes that beautiful giant ballad from red maybe her greatest record though i love lover i think that's a great record too um and so anyway there's too many great taylor swift songs to uh, we can do an entire podcast. Let's do, <laughs> yeah, let's do a side pro- podcast. If anyone just, would want to listen to that. Yeah, just a side podcast of two old white guys reminiscing about their favorite. <laughs> there we go. I, I think, um, what am I going to pick? Wildest Dreams. Love it. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, the new record is okay. It seems to me to be a record that is kind of a marking time record uh like a bridge record in a way but i have to listen to it some more um and uh we'll see how it, and i don't have any real favorites off that one yet same no anti-hero I- anti-hero is everyone's favorite song on that record uh, i'll have to give it a i'll have to give it a, a few other listens i think since the last record was so slow and expansive and you know had the national behind them i feel this is her maybe giving him something more poppy and light in response to those kind of more melancholic slow records that she did previous that's my theory Uh, yeah but i do think that um that lover was an amazing record yeah What's the we could leave the Christmas lights on till January? Um, 
every song on that record, I just think is. I mean, Lover. I'm just, oh, sorry. Yes, yeah, the title track, Lover. Lover is the, the entire record. Lover is great. One of my favorites. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There you go. I'm just looking at it right now. My biggest regret was I saw the nineteen seventy five for my birthday and the previous night they had Taylor Swift as a special guest and we didn't get of a second night. It was meant to be Harry Styles, but he flaked. You're making me really jealous hearing that. I'm in a I'm in a big nineteen seventy five moment right now. Uh I'm really into uh Matty Ely. I really He's a am. fan of yours. Really true. He's what? He's a fan of yours. <laughs> I did not know that. I did not know that. I'm, I'm, well, I'm, I'm, I love the new record. I got it right when it came out. I, I love the song about you. Uh, that's my favorite song on the record. And I just absolutely adore everything that he's doing, but I had no idea. I really even knew who I was. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're um, really, Oh yeah, dude. I didn't know that. I, I don't think I can control myself if I may. <laughs> <laughs> it's better off that he doesn't meet me. It's okay, better off. It's nice. better that way, Stephen. Okay. This has been such a pleasure talking to you. Look, thank you so much. Thank you, buddy. It's always great to see you. Take care. I will see you later, Stephen. Thank you. That was me and Brett Easton Ellis. The Shards is out now in hardback. And you can also listen to the full audiobook on the Brett Easton Ellis podcast available on Patreon. That's it from me. Thank you to Joshua Eustace, a.k.a. Telephone Tel Aviv, for my beautiful music. And thank you guys for listening. I'll speak to you soon. <laughs>